What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. And for those of you who have donated already or who've already subscribed, I really appreciate it. The numbers continue to go up so I'm very excited about that and as long as I keep getting interest in the show I'm going to keep doing it. So please continue to share it with your friends or anybody who you think might be interested. So I'm glad to be back and today we're going to be talking about four different companies. The first one we're going to touch on is Cariofarm, and they just released some updates at JP Morgan, and they also had some good news from the FDA, so we're going to talk about them. And then I'm going to talk about Regenex Bio, and as an aside, we're going to talk about ClearSide, because the two companies are kind of intertwined with the device that ClearSide has developed so that Regenex Bio could use. So we'll talk about them. And then the feature story for today is a company called Oncturnal Therapeutics, and they have a very cool novel molecule for uh, the oncology space. So that'll be the main story for today. And before I get into it, I do want to wish everybody a happy new year. Hope everyone had a great Christmas. I definitely did. I was lucky enough to take a vacation to Connecticut, and I also spent some time in New York City. So I got a sweet picture in front of the Wall Street Bull, which was very exciting for me. So... Uh, yeah, it was great to get some time off, but right back into it, and it's been a pretty crazy year so far, but I've got a lot of things to look forward to in terms of the biotech world, so uh, with that, let's just get right into it. And the first thing I want to touch on is Cariofarm, and the ticker symbol for that company is KPTI, and they are now trading at around a $1.2 billion market cap, although after today, it might be closer to $1 billion. But the reason why I wanted to touch on them is because in December of 2020, we heard that the FDA approved their drug Expovio or Silinexor for the treatment of multiple myeloma in patients with only one prior therapy. So this was very exciting news because it was three months early. The PDUFA date wasn't until February, I believe, and it came in in December. And so Silinexor was, was previously only approved for patients that were at fifth line or higher, in multiple myeloma treatments, but that now got bumped up to second line or higher. And we also heard that in Q2 of 2020 that they got approval for DLBCL, which is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, in a third line or higher. So all of this is basically increasing the indications and the eligible patient population for their main molecule called Expovio or Selenexor. And the stock did move up on the news, but like what usually happens with this company, uh, after the initial rise, it just keeps going back down. And that was true after this multiple myeloma improvement. And so I wanted to outline a little bit. The patient population went from fifth line or higher in multiple myeloma, which is around 6,200 patients, to second line or higher, which is 39,200 patients. So judging by the model that I've come up with, I give that a value today of around $1.5 billion. For DLBCL at the line that was approved for, third or higher, there's around 9,000 patients that would be eligible, and I give that around half a billion dollar valuation. So the company right now trading at around $1.1 or $1.2 billion, I think is still a buy. Now, what we heard from JP Morgan, and they presented on Monday the 11th of January, they gave us a little peek into their earnings, and they said that in Q4 of 2020, the expected earnings from Expovio sales are going to be $20 million to $20.5 million, and I'm just blowing that up on the screen here. So 
a decline of around 4 to 5% from Q3 of 2020 is kind of a disappointment. I think that as we're seeing these indications get approved, investors really want to see an acceleration in the sales numbers, but that really just isn't happening yet. I think that a lot of this stuff just takes time and that investors are just being a little bit too impatient when it comes to this. But the reasons that Carrier Farms said for the decline in sales are that the COVID-19 surge has prevented cancer patients from being seen by their doctor, and also it's been difficult for their commercial team to interact with patients. And now that probably is true, but I think that they need to get out the word to doctors so that they could share that information with their patients and convince them that Expovio is the right treatment for them. And I think it's going to come, it's just going to take a little bit more time. The other reason that they gave is that there was increased competition in second line or higher DLBCL. And now it is a crowded space, but I still think that the $0.5 billion valuation that I give that indication is a reasonably conservative valuation. So I think that they're still going to be able to deliver on their sales numbers, and then it's just going to take time. And I have a position in the company. I'll talk about my position a little bit later, but I think that it's a nice opportunity to buy the company right now, given that they have all of this potential revenue coming in, and then there's also a number of different uh, readouts that we're going to see as the company is continuing to develop the molecule in different indications. So some of the catalysts that I saw is that top line phase three data for endometrial cancer is going to come in H2 2021. They're also looking for approval in Europe for heavily pretreated multiple myeloma, and they're expecting that in February of 2021. So that's also going to increase the potential patient population. And then they're also looking at an NDA for dedifferentiated liposarcoma. It's not a huge patient population, so this doesn't bother me too much, but they pushed the date at which they were going to file until a little bit later, and I think they're coming up with a strategy of how they want to pursue that. So the other ones, though, they do have a pretty substantial pipeline. So I'm just blowing that up on the screen right now. Um, we have sarcoma, different gynecological cancer, I already mentioned endometrial cancer. They're going to be looking at solid tumors, things like lung cancer, brain cancer, and colorectal. And then they're also considering melanoma. So overall, I think that Carrier Farm, it's kind of a unappreciated stock right now because the momentum in it has not been very positive but I think it's time will come and we just need to be a little bit patient so for that reason I'm still holding on to a pretty decent position and I think it's worth holding on to throughout 2021 with that let's move on to another company and Regenix Bio has been a company that I've been invested in for quite a while now their ticker symbol is RGNX and they're trading now at around a two billion dollar market cap and just to give a bit of background on them they have uh, out licensing program for their gene therapies that they, they develop and then they also have an in-house program where they're actually developing gene therapies to treat patients so what we heard is that Regenix Bio I think it was in middle of Q4 they announced that they were selling the rights to the Zolgensma milestones for 200 million dollars and for those who don't know Zolgensma is a gene therapy treatment for patients with spinal muscular atrophy and the therapy was outlicensed to Avexis that was then acquired by another company, I think Novartis. Where Regenix Bio has done is sold all those rights to another company in exchange for $200 million up front. So this is just boosting their cash balance. The other thing that we heard is that they announced a public offering worth $175 million. Now I just looked before uh, recording this video and I saw that they closed the offering today and it was worth $230 million, so it was oversubscribed, 
and it was priced to the public at $47 per share, which you like to see. So they're really padding their balance sheet here so that they're nicely set up to roll out all these huge clinical trials that they're going to be undertaking. So with that, I want to touch on a number of the different trials that they're going to be doing and the things that we can look forward to. And their main therapy that I'm most interested in is RGX314. And this is a gene therapy that's trying to supersede the need for patients to get monthly injections for either wet AMD or diabetic retinopathy. So the state of the art right now is that patients need to get monthly injections of some kind of anti-VEGF therapy to treat their wet AMD or diabetic retinopathy. And what this does is it prevents the angiogenesis involved in these conditions from leading to negative effects associated with the condition. So what Regenix Bio is hoping to do is introduce a gene therapy into the cells of the retina in order to allow those retinal cells to produce the anti-VEGF compounds. And in this case, it's an antibody fragment that'll then go and inhibit VEGF that's being expressed deleteriously in the eyes of these patients. So that's the theory behind their treatment. And the way they're going about it is two different routes. And the one that they started with is this subretinal injection, which is a lot of problems associated with it. We heard maybe about a year ago that there were some significant side effects associated with the route of injection, not necessarily with the gene therapy molecule itself, just the way that it was injected, because it's an inpatient therapy that requires a lot of uh, resources in order to do properly. So what Regenix Bio has done is they're continuing their subretinal injections, but they're also moving into what's called a supracoroidal injection that is an outpatient therapy. It's done right in the doctor's office. So this would really lower the barrier to get patients treated and also presumably reduce the amount of negative effects associated with the route of administration. So given that this, this supracoroidal technology wasn't quite ready to go, Regenix Bio started with subretinal and they're now at phase three, a pivotal phase three in wet AMD. So they're going to continue that clinical trial. They're doing two 300 patient trials in wet AMD with a subretinal injection. The primary outcome is non-inferiority to monthly ranibizumab injections at one year. And we are likely to get uh, interim updates through this and the trials are starting in the first half and second half of 2021. Now, one thing to note, and just for those who don't know, ranibizumab is uh, some kind of anti-VEGF therapy that's normally treated monthly. Now, one thing to note here is that what Regenix Bio has told us is that they're going to be using existing manufacturing processes for the compound that they're going to be treating in the Pivotal, and then they're going to do a bridging study with the scaled-up process. So one thing that's kind of a tricky part of getting a drug to market is that you have one process to produce the drug that's usually scaled down, and then you have to scale that up if you're going to launch it commercially and make it available to whoever wants it. And in that process of scaling up, there can be a lot of issues. So Regenix Bio is actually taking kind of a risk here by using a manufacturing process that's not going to be used for the actual launch. And it doesn't make me feel great that they're doing this, but I think if any company can handle the scaling up process, it is Regenix Bio, given that they have such an expertise in gene therapy. So I say that kind of reluctantly because it's totally possible that when they scale up the process, there's going to be some issue with RGX314. But, you know, there's not much that we can do, and this is what they've decided to move forward with. So that's one thing to note about their 
phase three trials in wet AMD is that they're gonna have to do this bridging study with the scaled up process of the RGX 314 development. Okay, so having said that, they're also finally moving ahead with the suprachoroidal injections. And they have a phase two in wet AMD. The trial is up to 40 patients called AAV8. And they're using this SCS microinjector from Clearside Bio. And that's a company that I'm also holding, and it's gone up maybe like 150% in the last two months, so it's also done very well lately. And the primary outcome here is to evaluate the mean change in BCVA for RGX314 compared to ranibizumab monthly injections at week 40. And what the company's told us is that we can expect interim data in Q3 of 2021. So what's great here is that the suprachoroidal injection will be validated for wet AMD here. And I think that if we see positive data here, there's a huge potential increase in the stock because the stock was kind of held back for a while due to the side effects associated with subretinal injection. So if they can validate that suprachoroidal injection is able to deliver the virus and see effectiveness, we'd see a big upside in the company. So that was wet AMD. And now for diabetic retinopathy, a condition that has a significantly greater patient population than wet AMD, the company is going straight to suprachoroidal injections. So they're not even bothering with the subretinal injections, which I think is great. And in this phase two trial, they're doing up to 40 patients. The trial is called altitude. And the primary outcome is a equal or greater than two-step improvement in severity on the diabetic retinopathy severity scale at 48 weeks. And they are submitting the IND in H1 of 2021. And they've told us that we can expect initial data in 2021 as well. So that's the most exciting program that I see from Regenix Bio, but they're also looking at a number of different rare diseases, specifically MPS2, MPS1, CLN disease, and also Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So for MPS1 and MPS2, they're just going, just getting going with their phase one, two trial um, with first patients being dosed and different cohorts being enrolled. For CLN2, the IND submission is going to happen in the first half of this year. I did mention RGX501 because that was one that I talked about back in the day. Um, and this was for treatment of hypercholesterolemia, but they discontinued that. I'm not totally upset about that, to be honest. And then one other thing that they mentioned is a new program, RGX202, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And they're going to submit the IND for this in mid-2021. And what's interesting about this, and for those of you who saw the Sarepta news that came out, but Sarepta was unable to show very compelling data in their recent update in, I think, SRP9001. In one of the age groups, for some reason, they weren't able to see really good effectiveness of their gene therapy in DMD. So this kind of opens up the possibility of another player for DMD. And Regenix Bio is still far behind. Pfizer, I think, has a drug. And I think another company called Solid Biosciences has a drug. So those companies are going to be ahead. But it's kind of interesting that Regenix Bio announced this DMD treatment as Sarepta news came out about the setbacks that Sarepta has seen in their latest update. So I think that's kind of interesting. Still not worth pricing it into the stock at all. Just to give everybody an idea on cash. So they ended Q3 with $290 million plus $280 million from Milestones plus the Zolgensma revenue, and the $230 million from the recent cash offering. So they're sitting on a huge bet of cash, $800 million, without very much debt. So if you look at the market cap minus the cash they're sitting on, 
and I think that's the uh, equation for the enterprise value. I don't think they have much debt, so the enterprise value is looking like $1.2 billion. And for all the potential upside that the company could see here, I think it's definitely a buy at this price. And of course they have competitors, and I think that might be one thing that is keeping their valuation where it is. Adverum is, is a company that's competing with them. Kodiak Sciences is another one. So they're not without competition, but I think they have a great opportunity here in both wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy to come out on top. The last thing I'll say is that they're presenting at JP Morgan on Thursday, January 14th at 11.40 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So they might give us some more insight into what they're doing, and um, yeah, I'll look forward to that. So with that, let's get to the main topic of today, and that is the feature story, which is Oncternal Therapeutics, ticker symbol ONCT. They traded on January 12th at $5.09 a share, giving them a market cap of around $245 million. Their Q3 2020 net loss was $4 million, and their current assets sit at $23 million, plus a recent shelf offering at $86.2 million. So sitting on a very healthy amount of cash, and their current liabilities are $8 million as of Q3 of 2020. And what the company's doing is developing assets in oncology to target the ROR1. And their antibody means of doing this is called Sermtuzumab. And this would be a first-in-class ROR1 monoclonal antibody. And they're also looking at developing an ROR1 CAR-T. And this is still very early, so I'm not going to touch on this too much. But presumably, they would re-engineer CAR-T cells to target this ROR1 on cancer cells. But because that program is so preclinical, I'm not really going to touch on that. But Sermtuzumab, they're looking at indications in mantle cell lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, as well as breast cancer. So if you remember from our previous two talks, uh, we talked about non-Hodgkin lymphoma quite a bit. And mantle cell lymphoma is an aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma with CLL being an indolent version. So keep that in mind. The other asset that Oncternal is looking to develop is called TK216. And this is an ETS inhibitor, and that's a, a group of transcription factors that are known to cause cancer when they're deleteriously expressed. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but they're looking at indications in something called Ewing sarcoma, acute myeloid leukemia, and prostate cancer. So what is the ROR1? And what it stands for is a receptor tyrosine kinase-like orphan receptor 1. And in biochemistry, when they call something an orphan receptor, it means that they don't know or the scientific community doesn't know what the ligand is. But what's most established right now is that ROR1 is the receptor for WNT5A. And the WNT pathway, for anybody who's studied it, is extremely complicated. What I'll just say is that it's part of the non-canonical WNT pathway, which means that it doesn't include the protein beta-catenin. I'm not going to talk about that. There are countless Wikipedia articles that go into wind signaling, and it's a very prominent program in embryogenesis. So this receptor is highly expressed in tissues that are in development, and then it's lowly expressed in adult tissues. But what we see is that in cancer cells, it's highly expressed. And this is kind of a feature of cancer cells that cancer cells will have an increase in stemness or earlier developmental states such that they'll express receptors that are often seen in developing tissues. So that is kind of what's going on with ROR1. And the other thing that I saw was that ROR1 has a potential role in cancer stem cells. And for those who don't know the theory around the cancer stem cell theory is that 
cancer develops due to a population of cells that basically act as stem cells for the cancer. So we know that we have stem cells for normal cells, but what happens sometimes, according to the theory, is that the stem cells or adult cells will have enough mutations such that they can avoid death and act like cancer cells, and then they can give rise to the daughter cells that will actually produce the cancer. But if you're unable to kill those original cancer stem cells, even if you kill a bulk amount of the cancer, the cancer stem cells will still be able to give rise to those daughter cells that will lead to a recurrence in the cancer, and this is what causes relapses. So that's kind of a general idea of the theory, and what researchers suggest is that ROR1 is expressed on these cancer stem cells, and therefore it's a good target because if you kill the cancer stem cell, you'll kill any potential uh, relapse. So, WINT5A mediated ROR1 signaling enhances proliferation, stemness, invasion, as well as metastasis. Therefore, what Oncternal is trying to do is, through the use of either an antibody or CAR-T, they're trying to antagonize ROR1 in hopes of treating cancer. So, what does that look like? And what they first started looking at is mantle cell lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And so what we see here is their phase one, two data in combination with ibrutinib. And for those who don't know, ibrutinib is a BTK inhibitor, which is a kinase that's involved in a lot of these hematologic malignancies. And ibrutinib is very effective. What they're doing is three different parts. Uh, part A was a dose escalation, and then part two and three were the recommended dose from part one, but part three had a control group, we'll say, which was just ibrutinib compared to ibrutinib plus sermtuzumab. But what everything is here is in combination between sermtuzumab and ibrutinib. And if you remember what I talked about with regards to ALX oncology and trillium, they had two different approaches of treating hematologic cancers. And we had the monotherapy with trillium and the combination therapy with ALX. And here, the route that Oncternal is taking is the combination route with the Brutinib. So, in a similar way, we need to be able to compare the effectiveness of the combination to some kind of single-arm data that we've seen in the past. And so we're going to do that right now. But the MCL data, which is the aggressive NHL version, in Part 1 and Part 2, they saw an objective response rate of 83.3% in Part 1 or 100% in Part 2, but this is a smaller patient population. But the exciting data here is in part one. And what they saw here was that, you know, the ORR was 83.3%, but amongst that, they saw 58.3% was actually a complete response. So they're seeing high effectiveness in both partial and complete response, but the complete responders are out of control. And some studies that I dug up of abrutinib efficacy alone in MCL the one study that I saw, and I've got the reference here, is 66% objective response rate, but the complete responders were only 20% with partial responders at 46%. So what Oncternal is seeing here is kind of a total flip with that, where more of the responders are actually complete responders, and the minority responders are partial responders. So this here is extremely positive data, and I think would absolutely warrant single-arm data for approval. And what Oncternal is doing is discussing with the FDA how they can accelerate approval given this data. So I think they're still in the middle of collecting data for part two. 
given that there's only three evaluable patients, but so far all three of them have a partial response already. So that's positive and uh, we'll keep looking forward to increases in the number of patients here. When it comes to CLL, the data is a little bit less impressive, I would say. One thing we saw in part one and part two for CLL is 91.2% objective response rate, which is huge. And they also got one complete responder. Comparing this to kind of a single arm version of ibrutinib in CLL, the objective response rate is around 82%. So, you know, the objective response rate is pretty much on par, plus they saw a complete responder here, which is very positive. Now with part three, like I mentioned, it's a bit of a head-to-head -head study between Sermtuzumab plus ibrutinib compared to ibrutinib. But what they see here is that the ibrutinib alone group had a 100% objective response rate, all of them were partial responders, whereas the Sermtuzumab plus ibrutinib group was 93.3%, so a little bit lower because one of the patients was at stable disease. So there's still a chance for this patient to become a partial responder and meet the control group here. and you know, it's just a little bit early, so I don't think it's anything to be concerned about. But basically what they're seeing here is on par between Sermtuzumab abrutinib compared to abrutinib. So I'd still say overall it's extremely positive data, but right now they haven't shown necessarily that it's better than just abrutinib alone. Now one thing I also wanted to mention is that in MCL, 4 out of 15 of them were treated with abrutinib alone beforehand. So abrutinib before then they relapsed and then treated with sermtuzumab and abrutinib. And what they're saying here is that 100% of those patients responded. So it definitely seems like sermtuzumab is adding something better than abrutinib. And there's like a synergistic effect that could be going on here as well, whereby inhibiting both ROR1 as well as BTK has a greater enhancement in effect rather than just one of them alone. So that's something else that I think is important to note here that I think won't go overlooked by something like the FDA. So to get a little bit more granular in the data, Onkternal had this on their corporate presentation, and this is basically the data that they showed here, Sermtuzumab plus Abrutinib in a type of Kaplan-Meier curve with progression-free survival. And what they're seeing here is that at 30 months, they're still seeing a nice amount of patients that are continuing on therapy without progressing. And then when you compare this to single-agent abrutinib, at 30 months here, we see that progression-free survival is sitting at around 0.3, around 30%. So there's obviously a big improvement here with the combination therapy than just the single-agent. And then also here, like I mentioned, the objective response rate, they're sitting at 87%. The combination compared to abrutinib alone, which is only 66%. And the more interesting thing I think is that the complete response rate is 47% compared to just 20%. And so this is kind of interesting and it kind of goes along with the theory before where maybe this compound, Sermtuzumab, is actually attacking the cancer stem cells such that it's having a complete response in preventing the tumor from growing at all, leading to more complete responders than just partial responders. And I'm just speculating right now, but that could have something to do with the mechanism here. Moving on to CLL, I wanted to show this graph quickly because, you know, I talked about it, how the data for CLL was less impressive than MCL, but one thing we need to note is that in relapsed and refractory patients compared to treatment-naive patients, there seems to be a bit of a difference so far in how they're responding. And what we see here is that with a median follow-up of around 17 months, the median progression-free survival is 29.5 months. And what that means is that at 25.9 months, Half the patients have progressed, 
and half of them are still not progressing. And so what we see with the treatment naive group though, is that at 16.6 months, so which is about the same, the median progression-free survival has still not been reached. And what that means is that they're still not at 50% of patients uh, progressing and 50% not progressing. So what the company's gonna do is continue to watch these patients and see how long it takes before 50% of them end up progressing. And that date is actually pretty significant. And if they can see a big improvement in the progression-free survival numbers, I think that would bode very well for the therapy in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So that's just one thing to keep an eye on. So that's non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I wanted to touch quickly on breast cancer. And they don't have a ton of data in breast cancer yet, but I did just want to show it just so we could you know, talk about the potential here. And they're looking specifically at HER2 negative breast cancer. And they're in phase 1B right now, and they've shown interim data. So what they're doing is Sermtuzumab plus Paclitaxel, and it's in a single-arm trial. And they only have seven patients right now, but among seven patients, they've seen four that have had an objective response. And so that's an objective response rate of around 57%. And if you compare historically to Paclitaxel alone, their objective response rate is around 20 to 30%. And now, of course, it's just single-arm data, and it is very early data, so we have to take this with a grain of salt. But if they can show really good combination data as they increase the patient population, I think it would bode very well for the company getting an approval in breast cancer. And just to give people an idea of the patient population of breast cancer, HER2 negative makes up around 85% of the whole breast cancer population, and there's around 250 total breast cancer cases per year. So if you can imagine the, the number there, it's a very large total addressable market. And I also wanted to show some data from their corporate presentation. It's just some preliminary data here showing that in preclinical models, the ROR1 knockout has fewer bone metastases, and the sermtuzumab treatment in another model leads to fewer metastatic lesions. So, of course, this is just a mouse uh, xenograft model, so it's not a perfect representation of humans. Um, but I did just want to show that they do have some preliminary data to support this and that the preliminary data in HER2 negative so far is looking pretty good. So take this with a grain of salt, but so far it is encouraging. So that is the ROR1 program. The company's also looking at commercializing a molecule called TK216, and this is an ETS inhibitor. And to give a bit of background on ETS, and I'm saying ETS is the name, on one of their updates they gave, I was listening in the car to it, and they kept saying ETS really quickly, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So when I saw the corporate presentation, it made a lot more sense. But for those of you who are just listening, the abbreviation is ETS. And what they are, it's a family of transcription factors, and these are also often upregulated in cancer. The name stands for E26 Transformation-Specific Oncogene Family. They're, they're involved in a number of different cell processes, things like differentiation, cell cycle control, migration, proliferation, apoptosis, etc. And often these targets are involved in multiple different processes, and this is no different for this ETS molecule family. So one thing that's interesting about this, though, is that the ETS molecule becomes a problem when it's fused to another gene deleteriously. So in Ewing sarcoma, it's actually a gene fusion from the EWS gene fused to ETS. And what ends up happening during this gene fusion is that ETS is expressed 
uh, deleteriously due to the promoter or something that's going on with the gene that it's fused to, and in this case it's EWS. And when this happens, it leads to Ewing sarcoma. There's other cancers that are associated with ETS fusion events, and I just list them here. Uh, Pre-B acute lymphoid leukemia is JAK2 fused to ETS, and prostate cancer, it's ERG fused to ETS. So what the company is looking at doing is treating TK216 in Ewing sarcoma. And what this disease is, is a malignant tumor in bone or soft tissue, and the current treatment regimen involves chemotherapy plus local disease control, which is either radiation or surgery. And unfortunately, the five-year survival rate of metastatic Ewing sarcoma is only 33%. So there's definitely room here for another kind of therapy to try and boost this up. The disease is technically a rare disease since fewer than 500 children are diagnosed per year. So what Oncternal is looking to do is attempt a targeted therapy treatment by inhibiting ETS in relapse refractory Ewing sarcoma. So let's look at the data. And so far they're only in phase one, so it's still early, and they're doing a dose escalation study to find the recommended phase two dose. And they've told us that they've successfully picked a phase two recommended dose, so that's a good thing. And then the data is presented here. So in the low dose concentrations, they don't see much of a response. From cohorts one to six, there's only one patient that had stable disease of 21 patients. In dose escalation cohort seven and eight, they also didn't see much of a response. But then when they go to the recommended phase two dose in cohort nine and expansion, of 23 evaluable patients, two of them had an objective response and both of them were complete responders with eight in stable disease. So depending on how early they are in treatment, those stable diseases could become partial responders or complete responders. But given that the average prior therapies is four for these patients, they are heavily pretreated. And so seeing some kind of efficacy here with patients that don't really have another option, I think is very positive data and bodes well for an approval in this area. The company is looking at other cancers. I think I mentioned AML and prostate cancer. And prostate cancer in particular, because it's due to that ETS fusion event sometimes, I think the company has a really high chance of being able to select a patient population within prostate cancer that would be great candidates for the therapy. So that's kind of where they're at with Ewing sarcoma. And then I did mention down here that the safety was generally well tolerated and the dose limiting toxicities were managed by myelosuppression. So let's get to the model. And the current market cap of the company is at $245 million. And really the more exciting part for me is the ROR1 therapy from this company. So for MCL and CLL, I'll say from the outset that it's a crowded space. There are BTK inhibitors that have been wildly successful in this space. And I was talking about Ibrutinib, and this is a AbbVie J&J drug, Imbruvica. AstraZeneca has one, as well as Beijing. There are also PI3K inhibitors, and I've talked about these with my Veristem talk, Copictra, Zydlig. There's also BCL2 inhibitor called Venatoclax, and that's an Genentech drug. And then there's also anti-CD20 drugs like Rituximab or Roche's Gaziva. So suffice to say that it's a pretty crowded space right now, but the one thing that the company has going for it is it's a novel space. So ROR1 has not been clinically developed yet, and Ongternal would be first in class. And so what the company has shown us is an example of the abrutinib sales, and I'm just blowing them up right now. 
I don't think a brood nib is really the best comparator to it given that it has a number of different indications approved for it than just CLL. But the sales in 2019 for a brood nib were $3.8 billion, so that's obviously a tremendous amount of sales right now. So I think what's more appropriate is to compare the trajectory to Gaziva, which is Roche's anti-CD20 drug. And their revenue for 2019 was 552 Swiss dollars, I believe that's CHF. And it's almost on part of the dollar, so just pretend it's dollars. And the initial approval of Gaziva was in late 2013, but they had a number of different hangups that prevented the real adoption of the molecule. But one thing that happened in early 2019 is that it was approved in first-line CLL or SLL in combination with a brutinib. Now, obviously, it takes time for the molecule to get adopted, but here we see a first almost full year of revenue from combination between uh, Gaziva with the Brutinib, which seemingly Oncternal is going to look to do. So $552 million in revenue is still double the market cap that Oncternal is trading at right now. And I think that if we look at that as kind of a base case right now in terms of revenue that they could start to see, I think that Oncternal should be trading much closer to $1 to $2 billion right now. And so Another piece of data that I think is interesting is that the original creator of Ibrutinib was Pharmacyclics, and that was acquired for $21 billion. It's not the, the same as Oncternal necessarily, but $21 billion is a huge price tag. And then I also wanted to mention that Ibrutinib is priced at $13,000 per patient per month, and the patient population for MCL is around $2,000 per year with CLL at 21,000 patients per year, and I've got the links there. So in terms of what we can expect from the company, I think at such a low valuation, any positive readout is going to have a multiple times effect on the stock price. So I'm estimating here that if they continue to see positivity in CLL, MCL, the fair market cap would be between one and $2 billion. Positivity in Ewing sarcoma, because it is a rare disease, I think it could also garner a market cap of one to two billion. And then if they see positive effects in breast cancer as they continue to collect data, that I think deserves a four to five billion dollar market cap given the huge patient population in breast cancer, HER2 negative specifically. So the negative case on the other hand, I give it a maybe 50% decline and it would trade it around cash I think if they happen to see negative outcomes in all of these trials. For me, I don't really see a reason to not buy at this valuation. I think I've heard some people talk about how the company raised funds at inopportune times, but for me that just increases the amount of cash they have so they can actually develop these products further. The fact that it's a first-in-class ROR1 antagonist also makes me think that it's a high potential buyout contender. Now I hate talking about M&A as everybody knows, but I think that looking at them from that perspective also is very enticing. So for me I'm going to take a pretty decent position in the company and hope to see the readouts come up in 2021. And to look at those readouts, here's what they have coming up. So Sermtuzumab updates they're gonna give for MCL and CLL in H1 of this year. They're going to give an update on HER2 negative breast cancer also in H1 of this year. And they're also gonna look at preclinical data in additional ROR1 expressing tumors. So that's one thing that I think is very attractive here is that they can select patient populations that are highly expressing ROR1 in their cancers and use them as a criteria to show that this molecule has effectiveness in these patients. And they do this with PD-1 already, 
and they may as well start doing this with ROR1 in these early trials. So I think doing this is going to validate and really going to set themselves up for success in these indications. Their RR1 CAR T, uh, first in human dosing in China, I'm not really going to talk about that. Maybe I'll do a follow up video touching on the RR1 CAR T, but right now I think that there's more excitement with Sermtuzumab and TK216. So for TK216, they're going to give an update in Ewing sarcoma for the phase one expansion cohort in the first half of this year. And then they're also going to give preclinical data in other ETS driven tumors. So, like I mentioned, prostate cancer I think would be a great candidate there and uh, hopefully we see an update with that. But I think that the catalysts that are coming up and where the company's trading at really sells the company as a buy right here. So that's what I'm gonna do on uh, the next trading day. So in terms of the next weeks, things I'm looking at, um, it looks like Mr. Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. I don't think it's gonna affect markets too much. I think they've already priced in the fact that it's gonna be a democratic sweep. We saw that the Democrats won in Georgia, so we're gonna have a Democrat executive and legislative branch. I'm not super worried about it. It seems like the market has totally shrugged it off. Higher taxes are definitely gonna come, especially corporate taxes, but I think with all the momentum the stock market has, uh, a tax increase doesn't seem like it's gonna slow it down. So I'm not super worried about that. Uh, in terms of biotech specifically, JP Morgan is going on right now. So I'm keeping an eye out for little tidbits of info that come out. And then one thing I wanted to mention is that the Orenia PDUFA date is coming up on January 22nd of this year, and I fully expect it to be approved. I'm holding a small position, so I'm looking forward to that date. And just to give a quick wrap up of my portfolio for 2020, I wanted to just talk about this, like kind of a quick yearly wrap up, and then I'll talk about what I'm looking at for 2021. But basically I finished off at 11% on the year, and this is you know four or five times lower than the XBI. And that's mostly due to all the craziness in the vaccine stocks that propelled the market so much higher. So I did not beat the XBI, but I am happy to have come out on top of at least the Dow Jones. And I almost matched the SPX 500. So it is what it is. I'm still pretty happy with my performance. I think if I didn't have the losses in Ameren, um, I may have doubled my performance this year. But, you know, it is what it is. So overall, my big winners this year were Trillium, TG Therapeutics, Marathi, Iovance, and Regenix Bio. The losers this year were Amarin, Catalyst Bio, SIO Gene Therapies, Cyclerion, uh, Viking is not done very well, and Bluebird. So um, a few of these I'm still holding, and I think that 2021 might see blue skies for them. So to give an idea of what that looks like, this is the performance so far. And what I'm gonna actually track, as well as the other indices, I'm gonna track Kathy Wood's ARC-G fund because uh, it's so funny. In the last like two weeks, I feel like everybody is talking about Kathy Woods and her hedge fund. Uh, I'm gonna track that performance as well and uh, see if I can beat her in 2021. But it might be tough because she's so able to drive retail interest in single names that I don't know if I can do it, but that's what I'm gonna look to. So. So far, I've got a year-to-date profit and loss of around 5%. This is just the first week. I haven't done it up to Wednesday because we're middle of the week. But I thought it also include a position weight as opposed to just looking at the volatility because I never really do anything with that anyway. But basically, my portfolio is heavy cash right now. And then it's led by Trillium at around 12% and Regenix Bio. Both of them saw pretty big run-ups in the last little while. So that's the reason why they're so overweight in my portfolio. Clearside as well is looking at 2.6%. So really my 
Regenix Bio clear side position is closer to 13, so it's probably leading. And then I have kind of a middle tier with Madrigal, Axome, BTAI, as well as Viking at 6.3%. And then my lower tier ones, KPTI, Bluebird, Arenia, Iovance, Cyclerion, SIO Gene Therapies, and Hepion. So that's kind of how my position is tiered, and I think it'll be interesting to see how the position weighting plays out for the rest of the year. So I'm going to wrap it up there, but thank you again, everybody, for your attention. I appreciate all the support, and let me know what you think. Let me know if I miss anything with Onkternal or any of the other companies I covered, because I'm going to invest in it too, and I want to know if I miss something. And yeah, if you like the show, please share it with a friend, click the like or subscribe button, and you can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. And with that, I'm going to leave it there, but thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.